evening, everyone. Welcome. It's 2018. Welcome to Stewart Observatory and to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series. We also welcome those of you watching this lecture on iTunes U, streaming at the University of Arizona site, or at as.arizona.edu. Um, first of all, I hope you were able to get a schedule for spring 2018. It's kind of a light schedule. I only decided to do two lectures in conflict with the College of Science lecture series, and I still need to get a speaker for March 26th, but I'll get one soon. Uh, but we have uh, some good lectures, especially the one on April 23rd, David Sand. He's the guy that was part of that, um, collo uh, that collaboration that found the gravitational waves and the hypernova. He's going to talk about multi-messenger astronomy. He's, he was one of the members of the research team. So you're going to hear all about that on the 23rd of April. Um, the other thing that I'd like to mention, because we won't have another lecture until then, uh, next month we're actually celebrating... I know you're going to get tired of this, the 100th anniversary of Stewart Observatory. Back in 2016, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the gift that made it possible. However, in real life, you just don't give the money and boom, there's the observatory. Well, I have a, a, a copy of a letter dated February 1918 when the president of the university, Rufus von Kleinschmidt, officially gave Andrew Ellicott Douglas, the position of director of Stewart Observatory. So that's where we date the beginning of Stewart Observatory as a unit of the university. Now, the observatory wasn't dedicated until 1923. So we're going to have another 100th uh, celebration in 2023. But on the evening of February the 16th, which is a Friday night, we're going to have a Stewart Observatory open house. Okay? Both our telescopes will be open. The telescope at Flandreau will be open. There will be special programs at Flandreau. We'll have an open house on our research. And basically, the building will be open all Friday night to celebrate the 100 years of February 15, 1918, when Stewart Observatory officially came into existence as a part of the university. You're, uh, if you're on the uh, website, we'll actually get more details out to you uh, via email. So make sure you're on the Stewart Observatory email list. If you're not, you can put your email on that list back there on the table at the back of the room and you can learn more about this event. We'll send all the information out to you. It is a cold and chilly night, but the telescope is open. So we will have telescope observing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. And if there are any students here for an assignment, I will validate your assignments at that table down there at the conclusion of the question and answer period. So I would love to welcome Professor Jerry Selwood for, as our speaker this evening. Jerry received his bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Bristol in the UK. His PhD is in astronomy from the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. And you said 27 years? You were a professor, a distinguished professor. Uh, yes, eventually, but at Rutgers University in New Jersey. But he is now retired from Rutgers University, moved out here to Tucson, and he is now a, a, a official faculty colleague here at the University of Arizona at Stewart Observatory. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Professor Jerry Selwood to give us a talk on spiral patterns and galaxies.
this right? Is it working? Yeah, just start talking and I will just... Yep. Okay. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. This is the uh, first talk I've given to uh, the public in Arizona. So, uh, uh, and if you... This is a, going to be a talk on theory, which is an unusual thing for people at Stewart to talk about, I believe. Uh, but I'll do my best to make it intelligible. And if, uh, if I do not make sense, please interrupt me and ask, ask questions. So I'm going to talk about a long-established age-old problem. This is a beautiful picture of, uh, uh, of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. But the spirals in this galaxy were first seen by Lord Ross in 1850. And this is the, he was the first person to build a telescope with uh, enough light-gathering power to see the spirals in a galaxy. And this is the sketch he drew, because of course there were no photographs back then, uh, of, the, uh, of the object he was looking at. And it's very clear now, from, by comparison with that, that he was looking at the same object. And uh, in his report about this observation, he mused, I wonder what causes these funny structures? And I think the question is still outstanding and unanswered although I think I'm getting close to providing a decent answer. So let me back up a little way, just for the bit. I know most of you have uh, come to uh, many talks here at the observatory, but just in case there are people who don't, uh, who don't know much about galaxies, let me just say that there are two different kinds of galaxies. This is a, a, another Hubble image of the, uh, of the Coma Cluster. This is an elliptical galaxy. It's just a big ball of stars. These, are, these things are spiral galaxies, which are thin disk-like objects. And uh, as you can see from this one, which we see almost edge on, that's NGC 891, and this one here, uh, they, the disk is pretty thin, and there are, uh, you can't see them when the disk is edge on, there are spirals in these disks. Thank you, Tom. That's much better. And one of the things that, that people have uh, remarked upon is that the spirals in galaxies take a remarkably wide variety of forms. This, this is a Spitzer telescope infrared image of, uh, of M101. This is another Hubble image of very different type of spirals, but nevertheless there are unmistakable spirals in both of those galaxies. And there's a, some have, have well-defined two arms, some have a messy spiral structure like this one uh, and this one. But uh, they're all uh, disk galaxies which manifest spiral patterns. It's extremely common. In fact, almost every spiral galaxy that has some gas, exhibit, every disk galaxy that has some gas exhibits spirals like this. And so uh, this has been a, a, a ubiquitous problem for uh, astronomy as to why this phenomenon happens at all. Now, there are uh, about 30% of all spiral galaxies have a bar like this across the center. And in these three cases, it's quite clear that the spirals emanate from the ends of the bar in all three of those cases. And so the spiral and the bar are intimately connected in those. Uh, and we un understand a little bit about bars. I could give you a talk on bars, but I'm not going to because uh, uh, that those we understand. Uh, and uh, you know, what is causing the spirals in these galaxies is very clearly something to do with the bar. 
There are also galaxies like M51, which I showed you right at the beginning, which have these beautiful spiral patterns that are interacting with a companion. This, this object here, is, is a, uh, we believe, has, ha, has orbited past uh, M51 in the comparatively recent past. Uh, in, in, you know, it's, it's moving past this galaxy and has excited a, a very nicely organized beautiful spiral pattern. And there are many cases like that in the universe where two galaxies are close to each other and we think the excitation of the spiral pattern in one galaxy is due to the uh, gravitational influence of the companion coming by. I'm not going to talk about either of those types of spirals. The real challenge for, for me as a theorist is the case where there is nothing obvious that's driving the spiral. That is a galaxy like this one which has no nearby companion, no bar, and yet it still has this beautiful spiral pattern. And uh, that's the real challenge that the theorists have faced over these last 150 years, is why do the galaxies possess such beautiful features? And the only uh, answer that the, that the theorists can say is that they must somehow develop spontaneously without being triggered by uh, a bar or a companion, and if that's true, we would like to understand how that happens. So, let me jump straight into the kind of research that I do. I run these computer simulations. Uh, what I do is I set up a, a disk of what I supposedly stars, although they're a bit large for stars. There are only 200 million particles in my simulation, and galaxies have more than that more stars, but this is close to the right number of particles in the simulation. And if I set it up without any, I'm I, I just following, applying Newton's laws of motion and gravity, very, very simple physics, uh, and uh, allow these, uh, part, these particles to interact with each other, then spontaneously, without me having to do anything, the simulation begins to develop spiral patterns. So uh, we, uh, and uh, this, this movie wraps around. It's going to start again in just a moment. Uh, let me watch, watch that through. It begins without doing anything very much, and then the spirals develop. There they go. All of them on their own accord, without me having to do anything to provoke them. And, uh, and they behave uh, in beautiful, well-organized spirals for a while, and then as it gets towards the end of the movie, you'll notice that the spirals are fading away. That's interesting, and I'll come back to that in a while. But the conclusion from this is that, quite definitely, if we could understand what's going on, this, is the, uh, the, this shows us that, uh, that the spirals do develop spontaneously in a, in, in a model of a galaxy. So how does it happen? That's the question. Now, most of you know uh, I, I, well, if you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's a, here's a beautiful galaxy. Uh, this is a, a, a negative of an image of a galaxy. I think it's got 49, NGC 4939, but it doesn't really matter what its telephone number is. Uh, it's, a, it's a typical spiral galaxy uh, that was observed uh, in, in, by a South African telescope with, by a student of mine called Mitchell. And uh, this is, this is some, something that we've measured. And, uh, we measured the uh, Doppler shift of the, uh, the emission lines from the, that were given out by the gas in that galaxy. And by uh, modeling this, this is a, a disk which is slightly tipped to our line of sight so we can see the, uh, the orbital motions of the, uh, of the gas. 
in, the, in this object here, we can figure out how fast the galaxy is spinning at each radius as we work out from the center to the edge. And that's what this boring uh, rotation curve over here shows you. It's the circular speed of the gas in this galaxy as it's orbiting around the, the center of the galaxy as we go farther and farther away. And as m many of you may already know, typically this, this uh, curve tends to be nearly constant value. So this is a pretty big galaxy. The circular speed here is somewhere around between 250 and 300 kilometers per second, which is pretty decent si size, but it, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty nearly flat over from the center to the edge. And that means, unlike the planets in the solar system, for example, that, that, that this is moving uh, about the same speed as the uh, inner parts, whereas Jupiter moves much more slowly than Mercury, as you know, uh, but the, um, this outer gas here is still uh, got much farther to go around the outside of the galaxy than the gas at the center here. And so this uh, completes an orbit here in much less time than the outer parts. So in other words, the galaxy is rotating differentially. There is a higher angular speed at the center than at the edge. And many, most galaxies do, do this. Now, that would suggest to you that uh, if somebody were to paint some structure onto the, onto the galaxy and let it evolve over time, the inner parts are going around faster than the outer parts, and so it will wind up and get tighter and tighter and tighter, as coffee in a coffee cup, for example, where the center spins a little bit faster than the edge, where the uh, liquid free, uh, has some viscosity with the cup walls. And, uh, but this process in galaxies happens really quickly, or at least comparatively quickly, and uh, galaxies are much older than it, than it takes the time for, the, for this structure to wind up. And if, it, if we carried on uh, the movie here for the full age of the galaxy, it would, it would wind so very tightly that, that it would be uh, almost invisible. It would just be a black uh, disk that you would see. So if, if this is important for how spirals work in galaxies, it, 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 it's not good enough to just do it once. You've got to somehow rather restart the, the uh, movie every once in a while, and there's no obvious mechanism to do that. Somebody had a question? No. Okay. So I'll leave that to one side for a moment, but that, that you know, differential rotation is important, and it, it helps, but uh, it's not the answer. Now, right at the beginning, I showed you a whole bunch of pictures of pretty galaxies with nice spirals. Here's a galaxy. There are not so many of those in the, on the web that you can find. This, this is a boring galaxy with no spirals at all. But you can still see that the, the galaxy is here, and there's galaxies in the background. This is, a, again, a Hubble image. Uh, and this, this disk of this galaxy has no spirals in it. And it also has no gas. This is a very, uh, well, fairly atypical. There are, there's a, there's a, a, a something like 10% of all disk galaxies have no gas and no spirals. But uh, that, that these are less uh, common than the ones with spirals. And, uh, and of course, they're less photogenic, so it's hard to find good pictures of them. Um, and, but this fact that, you, that when you see gas in galaxies and you see young stars and you see uh, um, uh, knots of, uh, of star formation and things, that, told, that misled the community 
for many, many years that, that, into thinking that, that spirals were exclusively a phenomenon of the gas. And it didn't matter about the stars. If we could understand how the spirals formed in, uh, in the gas, then we'd have, we'd have the answer. But that didn't work. And there was no, uh, no real explanation that came up that, was, uh, that, that accounted for the spirals in gas. And uh, more recently, now I'm talking about only 20 years ago, um, we began to take images of galaxies in the near infrared. So this is an image taken in the blue light uh, of one galaxy, and this is taken in uh, uh, about one micron uh, wavelength of the same galaxy, uh, uh, but taken uh, in a, uh, you know, near infrared. And again, in this case, this is blue image, and this is near infrared. And you can see in the blue image that there are lots of bright, knotty features here where, where there are young stars forming which are very hot and emitting a lot of blue light. Uh, but when you look in the near-infrared, you're looking not at the young stars, but the older stellar population of the galaxy, the, the old boring stars that have lived for uh, uh, many giga years. And yet you can see, by looking in these, uh, carefully at these images, that the spirals that you see very clearly in the blue are still there in the infrared. And that tells us, without any doubt at all, that, the, uh, that, that this is, uh, these stars are taking part in this, in this spiral phenomenon. It's not just the gas. The old stars of the disk take part in this, in, in this dance about making the spirals. So how do we, why is gas so important if the stars are the things that are making the spirals? I think I can answer that question without difficulty. So this is a much older simulation of mine where I didn't have an animation, uh, but it's basically showing you the same thing. Uh, the, uh, the, the, it forms spirals, the time runs across the page like this, and then as we go down, it forms some spirals, and they look pretty promising for a while. And then as we get towards the end of the simulation, the uh, spirals have faded. And this is, uh, uh, happened in the movie I showed you a few minutes ago. Uh, and. Uh, the, uh, the, the time it takes to get from the start here where, where the spirals formed to the end is not anywhere near the lifetime of a, of a spiral galaxy. Galaxies typically last five or ten times as long as, long as that. So this is not a, 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 the final explanation for why uh, galaxies still have spirals. But uh, what's going on in these simulations is that the gravitational field of these fluctuating spiral patterns that you see in these here effectively shakes the galaxy gradually. So you start out with, with stars moving on nearly circular orbits at the beginning, and then as the spirals develop, the stars get deflected away from their nearly circular orbits, and the amount of random motion in the disk gradually rises. And towards the end of this, there's so much random motion that, that, like herding cats or naughty school children, they won't do what they want. Uh, they won't stay in line. They move around. They move under their own uh, own directions, and it's, you can't organize any structure because there's too much random motion. So the random motion is a, uh, by the end of this movie is sort of two and a half, three times as what it was right at the beginning, and therefore the the uh, galaxy can't organize itself into spirals anymore. But there's something missing. This simulation 
contains only star particles. There are no, there's nothing in there that includes gas. And as I said, we, we know as an observational fact that gas is essential. So why is gas important? Well, here's the same simulation, almost the same simulation, run a second time. But instead of uh, leaving the stars, leaving the galaxy alone, I constantly uh, added some additional material into the, into the disk of the galaxy, which represented gas arriving in the disk and forming stars. So I put in uh, new young particles all the time, continuously through, throughout the whole simulation, which were moving on close to circular orbits, which is what gas causes uh, uh, stars to do. And now you can see that with a small admission of a little bit of, of gas dynamics, that right to the end we have spirals present in this simulation all over exactly the same time interval as before. And if I continue the simulation after this, provided I constantly take account of the effects of gas, uh, then, then the spirals persist. And uh, people, this is an old simulation now, but people in modern simulations who use gas uh, find that they see spirals all the time. Okay, so what is important in the gas is not that it's, uh, the gas itself is making the spirals, but it's forming young stars. And young stars are, are stars which have nearly circular orbits and can replace the ones which have been scattered away from their circular orbits uh, and, uh, and give rise to uh, allow the galaxy to go on organizing itself into spirals. So we now understand one thing, which is why gas is important. Okay, but where did the spirals come from? That was the question I posed at the beginning, and I still haven't answered. Now, this subject has been, as I said, the question has been around now for 150 or more years, and, uh, and there are a lot of very smart people have worked on it. And uh, at one point, this guy, Alatumri, said, that the description of the theory of spirals is, is a bit like a bunch of people examining uh, blindfolded men or blind men examining an elephant. That each one of them is finding something interesting, the tusks or the, or, the, uh, or, or the trunk or the ears or the tail or something, and writing a paper about it and saying that, of course, this, this is an interesting aspect of the animal, but nobody has been able to stand back and say, I can see the whole elephant at once. And that's the thing that uh, we know a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but we haven't been able to find as a, as a description of the complete thing. But these guys are all smart, and they, they tried their best. It was my wife, by the way, who drew that cartoon. Um, so, uh, so what I've told you is that the, clearly these spirals are some kind of collective motion of the stars. If we, if we put the simulation together and just let the stars do their things, each one of them talks to the nearby stars and to the distant stars, and somehow or other all those interactions of all those millions and millions of particles uh, lead, make it want to, uh, want to make a, a, a collective uh, spiral pattern. And so what we need to understand is how these gravitational forces drag the stars together to make, the, to make it want to make a spiral pattern. And simulations is one way you can do it, and you can watch to see how it happens, but you really don't understand it when you simulate it. You just show that you've really got the right piece of physics together. 
you, but you still haven't understood exactly what, you, what, needs, what is going on. And another way of approaching the problem is with sophisticated mathematics. Now, I'm not going to drive you, drag you through any sophisticated mathematics, but I'm going to show you some pictures of some work that's been done by some of those people, uh, in particular this guy Toomery, who, who showed us uh, these, this diagram, uh, which is a beautiful theorist's abstraction of, uh, of a galaxy. So uh, from uh, what he assumed was that, that instead of having a rotation curve which wobbles up and down and it's got bumps and wiggles in it, he said, let the rotation curve be perfectly flat, which is, is pretty good approximation anyway, but exactly flat. So the inner part is going round. Uh, you know, each time you go out a factor 10 in radius, the time it takes for the, uh, for the stars to go round is 10 times longer. Uh, and then he said, all right, well, I'm not going to show you the, the uh, axisymmetric part of my galaxy. I'm just going to show you the parts where I've perturbed it. And he put into this uh, calculation, which, of course, he had to do with, with pencil paper and uh, Bessel functions and things. Um, he, uh, he put into this a, a, a little bit of a leading spiral. All right, the galaxy is rotating this way, and normally the spirals trail. That is that the open end of the spiral is, is uh, on the trailing side of the, uh, of the, as the galaxy is rotating. But he put in a little bit of a leading spiral, just to be perverse, and uh, he showed, through perturbation theory, that as, you, as, this simulation, as this calculation evolved in time, forwards in time, the spiral first began to unwind, which was no surprise at all, because the uh, galaxy, inner part of the galaxy is going faster than the outer part. But then as it twisted from being leading or almost open to trailing, it, there was this tremendous growth in amplitude, a, quanti a, a phenomenon which he described as swing amplification. And that gave you this beautiful spiral pattern which flowered for a short period of time. Uh, uh, each, there's, a, there's a clock particle here showing you that a half a time period later it's got to there and then another half time period. So each one of these is half a rotation at that point at which he's, uh, he's drawn that circle. So this doesn't last for particularly long, but it's a respectable length of time. And it produces, uh, it produces this beautiful spiral. But then, unfortunately, in the, the, if he continued the calculation, he found that gradually things wound up. And the ga galaxy has this differential rotation. And ultimately, when you organize something like this, that differential rotation is just remorseless. It goes on tearing and tearing and tearing at whatever structure you've begun, managed to put together and winds it up tighter and tighter. And uh, you lose the, the structure here. And just like ripples in a pond, this, uh, th this uh, instead of the ripples spreading out from the rock that you drop into a pond, the ripples go the other way in galaxies, and they go in towards the middle. So uh, the, the, towards the end, you get this ripple of a pattern which goes in towards the middle. But this doesn't, it doesn't go all the way to the center. It stops at this radius here, and that radius is the location of a resonance. A resonance. What is a resonance? Okay. So stars moving around in this disk are experiencing the perturbing force of this little spiral that he put into his, his uh, calculation. And if the perturbing force actually 
works, well, let me, let me go, go to this diagram here, which is much easier to understand. Familiar picture. If you want to make a toddler swing on a, a, on a swing like this, you have to push the toddler, and you have to push the toddler when he's at the back of the swing. So you stand behind, and you push the toddler, and he, he swings forward, and it comes back to you, and you give him a little shove the next time. And if you push a heart harder each time, the amplitude of the uh, swing grows. If you've, uh, when, when you get to uh, larger kids, they're able to work out how to do this themselves, and they do, they do it, and they swing their legs to and fro, uh, as, as, and their bodies to and fro, to uh, enable themselves to, uh, to increase the amplitude of the swing. And what they're doing, although you, you probably didn't know it when you were a kid when you were doing this, is you were just exciting a resonance. The swing has a natural frequency at which it wants to go, and you're swinging your your feet, your legs, and your body to and fro in exactly the same way to excite the uh, excite the, the motion of the swing. So that's what I, when I mean is that that's in resonance. If you swing your legs and arm and body are at the wrong frequency, so you try going twice as fast, you don't gain any amplitude at all. So uh, you have to do it at the right time, uh, and timing is right in a resonance. So what am I talking about? What's this got to do with galaxies? Well, the stars are going round in the galaxy here, and they're also uh, encountering this spiral pattern every time they go round. And it so happens at, the, at this resonance that they're bobbing in and out at one frequency and going round and round at another frequency, and each time they encounter one of these spiral arms, they, they're at exactly the same part of their in and out motion, and so that, that turns out that there's a resonance. So the uh, amplitude of the spiral here go, is, is given, all the, all the energy of the spiral is given to the stars, who gain energy from the, from the uh, spiral perturbation because it, they're, they're resonating with it. And so it's, the, they drain away, they sap all the energy out of the spiral and turn it into random motion. That's what I told you ha had happened in my simulations. I understand, or we understood why, but uh, it's, it's a, a simpler explanation is to, is to just understand it in terms of resonances. All right. So now I've wanted to bring a visual, an audiovisual aid in my backpack, and I left it here in my backpack. Here we have a cocktail shaker. I put the cocktail shaker down and I... You can hear it ring. If I put, the, put my thumb on it... Nah, no ring, just the thumb. Nice ring. If I damp it, I get a thud. And so... What happens in this particular case is that we've got... That's okay, Tom. It's fine. I won't need the lights up changed again. So, here, you're the Tumri was trying, in this calculation, was exciting a spiral here, but the, but the galaxy didn't want to behave because somebody was holding a finger on it and damping it. That was this one, this particular image. And so, uh, if, you, if you try... Uh, banging a galaxy, it doesn't want to ring, it just goes thud. 
it does this, does this for a short time, but then it stops because it, there's a, this damping that's going on. So if you want to make a long-lived spiral that rings for a long time, then, then you've got to somehow stop this damping. How do you do that? Well, let me remind you of some other little piece of physics. I'm drawing it together, one or two pieces of physics here. If you have a guitar string, and that, that guitar string has uniform, uh, is uniform from one end to the other, and you twang it, you get a nice note. But if the guitar string is damaged and there's a place in the string where, where, the, uh, where there are a few, only a few threads just holding it together, then, then, the, uh, then the guitar doesn't make a nice note uh, because this spoils the, uh, the, the, the passage of the wave up and down. So what I'm showing you here is a, a little packet of, of where well, this is just a computer calculation, but it's a little packet of, uh, of wave that's launched from one end and it reaches the point where the string is frayed. The, uh, the, there's much less mass per unit length of that string at the, in this red bit than there is in the blue, which is uniform. And w w when it reaches that point, uh, the uh, response of the string is not to, not to transmit the wave that was originally uh, incident on it, just a little bit goes through, but most of it gets turned back. So if you've got a short frayed piece in a piece of string like this, then you can turn the wave back uh, instead, of, uh, instead of having it go the whole length of the string to the other end. So we can make, we can, the idea here is to somehow rather stop the uh, wave from reaching the place where it gets stamped. So all I've got to do is to put in, before the wave gets to the, the uh, place where it's stamped, to put in a frayed piece of disc and it will, it will allow the wave, instead of to, uh, to, to be damped, to reflect and come back as a leading wave and go through this whole cycle again. So if I can find a way to stop the damping in this, in this inner part, I can make the wave turn around and come back out as a leading wave. It just bounces off the, off the reflection and comes back as a leading wave and goes through this amplification process all over again. And so we'll get something that rings for a long period of time. So how do you fray the disk? Well, actually, the answer's already here. The first time that you do this with, a, with some kind of uh, disturbance, the first time you do it, there is a, the wave will damp because at this particular point. But once the wave has been absorbed by, uh, by all the stars at this, this resonance, then there are no more stars left that, that can do the absorbing. So next time a wave comes along, there's nothing to absorb. The disk has been frayed away there's no stars that can, t that can participate in the disturbance that the wave is come, and so the wave cannot cross that region, and it turns around and goes back again. And that enables us to get a complete cycle. So the resonance with the previous wave gives you uh, a, a, an opportunity to, uh, to turn the wave around, send it back as a leading wave, and go through this all over again, and then we get a, a growing instability from the from the from in the stellar component, so the disk rings, and the ringing process is a spiral. Right, kind of technical, but uh, and it took me a very long time to work out exactly why and how the, what was going on in the in the uh, in the simulations, 
but I believe this is, this is now the explanation. Now, he goes through one cycle and makes a, a region in the disk that's frayed, and then another, another disturbance comes along and says, oh, I can bounce off of that and make a nice strong spiral that grows. But once that spiral saturates, it then has to, it frays it, it the disk at some other point, and then the, the disk has a, a new place at which it wants to make spirals. So it's just like one of these flags that you've seen over and over again in, in a, on a breezy day. It flaps this way, and then it flaps that way, and then it flaps this way. And, and so each one of these flaps is an instability caused by the wind going over the, over the, over the cloth of the flag, uh, but uh, it's, it's doing it over and over again. So uh, I'm getting uh, uh, repeated uh, incidences of this, uh, of this kind of spiral pattern in my simulations. And the decay of each one of these disturbances seeds the growth of another. Now, nothing comes for free. And as I said, if you don't put in some kind of gas to, to neutralize the effects of the increasing random motion in the disk, then quickly this whole, whole uh, process subsides away. But if you've got some gas, which most galaxies have, then, then it can keep that spiral activity going. All right, I'm just tooting my own horn here. Uh, having demonstrated uh, in, the, in, in the abstract that this, this works, I've now uh, created in this particular simulation, I've just put in by hand a frayed piece of disk, and then I get a, a growing spiral mode, which looks like this, and, uh, and it grows really uh, quite strongly, giving me a vigorous instability that produces a spiral uh, in, in a relatively short time. All right, so I'm a theorist. I've come up with my own pet little theory about what, uh, how spirals work, and what I really would like to do is to be able to test to see if I'm right. Because a good theorist can't just stop when he's finished his theory and say, okay, I've solved the problem. Is it correct, the explanation? I, uh, that, that is something that is very difficult to determine when we come to galaxies. If you look at external galaxies, you can see spirals. You can see that they are massive features in the disk where the dense surface density of the disk is higher in this place and lower in that place and then higher again in this place. You can measure all of that. But what you don't know when you look at a galaxy, you just see one single snapshot. The lifetimes of spirals and, and disks of galaxies are way longer than our lifetimes, so you just get one snapshot. Even if you wait 10 years, it hasn't changed. You've got to wait a billion or actually 100 billion years before something is different. So we just get one single snapshot, and it's very difficult from those one single snapshots to say this is what caused that particular spiral. But the nice thing about very convenient thing about us is that we live in a spiral galaxy. The Milky Way has spirals, and round us there are stars all filling the Milky Way, which are all part of the disk of the Milky Way. And those stars have a memory of the things that have, uh, have pushed them around the spiral waves that have been present in the disk, if we're clever enough to work it out, and that's quite technical. Now, uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a satellite which was flown by the European Space Agency called Hipparchus. 
Normally, you can measure the uh, proper motion and position on the sky of, of, of stars in the, in, from the ground you, to about a precision of about a tenth of an arc second. But if you go to space, you can measure positions and proper motions to about a hundred times better, with, which is what Hipparchus did. And then now we've got a spacecraft, Gaia, which can do 10,000 times better. Uh, we're still waiting for the results from Gaia, but this one was a hundred times better than the ground. And so it looked at 14,000 nearby F and G stars. So if Sun is a G star, these are just garden variety stars, ordinary nearby stars within a few hundred parsecs, you know, a few hundred light years of the Sun. And if the uh, satellite was, ac was um, accurate, in, could measure positions accurately enough and, and flew for several years so it could watch the stars moving across the sky. So we had good distances of full space, phase space motion for 14,000 F and G stars in the local, local, local part of the Milky Way. And this diagram, which is, uh, showed you what was so surprising about the results from that satellite. You'd have thought that, that, that relative to, to the motion of the sun, which is orbiting around the center of the Milky Way itself, uh, we, we, we would see stars just sort of uh, just moving around uh, relative to the uh, sun in it roughly randomly. But when you look at this diagram here, this is showing you the speed in this direction that the sun is moving around the Milky Way, and this is the cent direction to the center of the Milky Way. You can see that these stars do not have a relatively smooth distribution. They're very clear features in this diagram, which was a big surprise uh, for when we, when we got the results from the, this uh, from this Hipparchus satellite. And each one of these uh, groups of stars in this diagram has a name. This one's the Hyades stream. I think this is the Sirius stream. This is the Hercules stream. Each one of them is named after a cluster of stars that uh, takes part in that motion. The Hercules cluster or the Hyades cluster or this whatever. And uh, the, but the, the, the stream that interested me most was this one, which is the Hyades stream. And I colored some of those stars red. And I asked, where were those stars on the sky? And they're all over the place. So this is at right ascension and declination here. They're just completely all over the sky. And that was the nice thing about this Hipparchus satellite, was that it looked everywhere over the entire sky and measured all these motions. And we find that, that the stars that are taking part in this are not just localized in one particular direction. They're just all over the place, but they all share common motion uh, relative to, uh, to the sun. And this common motion was excited by a resonance between a spiral pattern and these stars. And, and that was why these stars have a particular motion relative to the sun. And I can tell you that because the Hyades cluster has an age, estimated age of about 650 million years, and the Hyades cluster takes part in this motion, that the spiral that, that moved those stars came through the Milky Way within the last 650 million years. And so what this is, is showing me is that, that there are these resonances in the local uh, distribution of stars, and that those resonances are responsible for, uh, well, I believe, are responsible for creating these spirals. Okay. So I believe that there is here in these data uh, some observational confirmation. Now, all these data 
came from stars which were just two or 500 light years or so from the sun, which is relatively nearby, as you know. Gaia, because it can do 100 times better in its precision than, than, than Hipparchos, will be able to go 100 times further to get data of the same quality. And then I will be able to see whether the spiral that, 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 that was responsible for this was a two or a three-armed spiral, because I could trace it round the Milky Way from the sun to the, in both directions to see where the spiral is, uh, where, how, how, the, uh, how this resonance was affected by at different phases of the Milky Way. So I will be able to do that uh, for that one spiral, and hopefully I will be able to see some other spiral, evidences of other spirals in, the, in those data too. So that's still to come. Let me stop, because I've reached my time. So what I believe I've shown you is that, that before my recent work, we had previously understood lots of things about, the, about galaxies. We had understood that spirals were a gravitational phenomenon. You need the gravity of the stars to, to, to make them work. And we understood from the earlier work that I showed you uh, right near the beginning, that gas is important because it needs to form new young stars to counteract the effect of the increase in random motion from the old stars. And then we had this guy, Toomer, who told us about swing amplification. Other people have worked out how, how uh, traveling waves travel across the disk, and still other people have worked on resonances. All of this came before I did. But uh, nobody has been able to put it all together, and I believe I'm close to doing that. And uh, I'm, I, I haven't yet, because I haven't yet done, solved absolutely every last detail of it, but I'm pretty close to uh, solving this 150-year-old problem. And I'll stop there. We have plenty of time for questions. We have a question here. How does uh, dark matter affect your models? Ah, okay. The answer is it plays an important role, but only indirectly. It doesn't, doesn't cause the spirals, but it, it, it's responsible for the fact that the rotation curve is flat, okay? So if we, if all you could see, if the only mass that you could see was in the starlight in the galaxy, then the, then the rotation of circular speed might rise to 250 or so, but it would drop away. And, and the differential rotation would be very fierce, and I think it would be much more difficult to organize spirals. So we get the flat rotation curve because there's this halo of dark matter around the galaxy, which, which has this right density distribution to cause the rotation curves to stay flat. That's a very common result. We see that every time, every galaxy we look at. And we know that that, that, that cannot be just stuff because of the stars that we see. There's got to be this dark stuff there. And that plays an important role in keeping the rotation curve flat so that you've got a fighting chance of being able to see the spirals. So if I understand you correctly, that means that without the dark matter, we probably wouldn't have spirals in galaxies? You would see spirals that are very tightly wrapped. Okay. If you... Think about Saturn's rings. Let me just finish answering your question. Saturn's rings are another similar phenomenon to spirals. In, you know, they're a disk of, uh, of matter around, around the planet this time, but that doesn't have dark matter halo. So the, 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 
rotation speed is declining away from Saturn very quickly. And the, the Cassini spacecraft, which looked at Saturn's rings very closely, saw these very, very tightly wrapped spirals. Okay? So the nice open spiral patterns that we see in the galaxies are the result of having a nice flat rotation curve and not a tight enough declining one. Okay? We have a question here. Um, were you able to get different types of spirals with different starting conditions and or adding different uh, gases of different densities or uh, anything like that? Pretty much, yes. I, could, I can get more or less anything that you can see in any of the atlases of galaxies by fiddling around with the parameters of my simulation. So yes, the answer is that if, if, I, if I make the rotation curve exactly flat, then I, I get spirals at a certain pitch angle. If I make it decrease a little bit, they get a bit tighter. If I make it rise a little bit, they get a bit more open. Okay? And I can make, uh, if I inc vary the amount of dark to, to luminous matter in the, in the disk, I can get uh, two arms if the disk is heavy and five arms if the disk is light. So I can, I can do anything like that. Uh, and I understand all the reasons for that, but I didn't want to go into everything. Question here. Sure. I know this lecture is basically about spiral galaxies. However, um, with regard to elliptical galaxies, um, which follow the different uh, trajectory along the evolution, I'm just curious, based upon what you've presented uh, regarding information about the evolution of spiral galaxies, I'm just wondering if maybe there's some mechanism that has somehow suppressed the formation of spiral arms in elliptical galaxies? Um, well, what, what I explained to you in my talk was that random motion is very bad for spirals. If, if the stars are moving, uh, uh, not, not, not moving around the galaxy in an organized flow pattern, but have started to develop some random motion, it becomes much more difficult to, uh, to, to organize a spiral. Elliptical galaxies have taken that to an extreme. There is only random motion. There is no organized streaming motion. So there's no way, basis in which you can make spirals in elliptical galaxies. Question here. If Hi. the galaxy is a quasar, does that affect things? Could you say it again, please? If the galaxy is a quasar, does that affect the spirals? Uh, you mean if it has a black hole at the center? Yeah. Um, well, black holes are, are important because they, they're very energetic phenomena. But the uh, right, uh, this galaxy here has got uh, 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 an active black hole in the center. So it's, it's what we call an active galactic nucleus galaxy. It's not a quasar because it's not nearly as bright as the quasars, but it's, a, it's the same kind of thing, only on a much less uh, energetic scale. But the mass of that black hole in the center of this galaxy is only about one hundredth of one percent of the galaxy mass. So it really is a sideshow when it comes to the, all the mass of the disk here. All the stars outweigh that black hole by 1,000 times, 10,000 times. And so that black hole, although it, it does some very interesting things right at the center, it has almost no effect on the, on the dynamics too, too small. We have a question here. On your simulation, you mentioned that you added gas to get it to do the spirals. Yeah. But did you start with all the gas at once, or did you add it uh, progressively? I have not done that. Uh, I'm not really a gas dynamics expert, uh, so I, I cooked up something uh, that was approximately the way in which gas behaves. But more recently, people who are 
good at that kind of calculation have started exactly as you describe. In fact, there are many people, uh, you've probably heard a talk here in this uh, auditorium in the last three or four years, from uh, somebody who does simulations of galaxy formation. And they start right from the beginning with nothing but gas. They get spirals just the same way as, these, as I do in my simulation. But because they're, uh, because they're doing everything, they're doing the whole nine yards, they're doing all the formation of the, the collapse of the gas and the, and the interactions of the galaxies and everything, very difficult to understand what's going on. I take the uh, an approach of saying, let me keep things simple and work on one thing at a time. <laughs> then I can understand it. Uh, yes, in your particle uh, simulations, uh, do those particles have any uh, relation to the uh, birth and death of stars, or do they um, exist for the whole simulation? Oh, uh, the last part I missed, because uh, I thought... Uh, whether they have any relation to the birth and death of stars, or whether, I guess, are they just always there, those particles? Do you have any stellar evolution? Um, well, as I said, I, I, yeah. I, I put into my simulation the formation of stars. Yeah. Uh, I also tried another thing, which is to add new particles and take away some of the old ones, imagining they finished and, and it exploded a supernova. Okay. That made no difference. All you need to do is to be able to get new stars on circular orbits. So, yes, uh, some, stars in the, you know, some stars live for the lifetime of the universe and more. Our sun lives, will survive for about the half the age of the universe. Maybe, well, it, it's already half the age of the universe, but it will survive for a, a roughly equal amount of time. But, but there are some stars that, that are much lower mass than our sun, which will live forever. And they're actually the most numerous kinds of stars. They, they will live far longer than the age of the universe. So it's not really necessary to worry about the lifetimes of stars. They, they, most of them are too long to be of interest to science. Well, what is different about barred galaxies? Barred galaxies, aha. Um, well, there's an awful lot. Um, here we are. Here's some pictures of barred galaxies. The most uh, striking thing about barred galaxies is this feature across the middle here. There's a lot of stars in, uh, in that bar. And those stars, instead of, instead of orbiting around the galaxy in near circular orbits like most stars do, they, they stream up and down the bar. The bar is sort of gradually turning. So as, as the bar turns around in this direction, the stars move up and down it in, a, in a sort of very uh, elongated, a bit like a spirograph. You remember the spirograph toys that kids used to have 20 years ago? Yeah, well, those are the kinds of orbits that the stars follow in these things. And they're all held together by their own self-gravity. So this is the, these bars are very robust. There's enough mass in there that if any star wants to get out of line, it's quickly pulled back by the gravity of all the others. And so it turns as a solid object here. But at some point, at the end of this bar, you find that the bar is turning as fast as the gas in the disk. And then it can't continue to hold itself together beyond that radius. And so the, you get these spirals that develop in the outer part of the galaxy. Is there a bar or a disk in every galaxy? No. No, that's, a, that's an excellent question. But there are very clearly galaxies that have no bars. The Milky Way does have a bar. 
our Milky Way is believed to have a, have a bar like one of these. But about 30% of all galaxies have strikingly strong bars like this. Another 30% have bars which are much weaker and less, less, less visible than these. But there are definitely a, at least another third of galaxies which have, uh, have no bar at all. And if you ask me why, the answer is I still don't know that. <laughs> we have a question here. Um, what causes the initial rotation of the gases? Ah, okay, that's a, that's a, a very deep question. Good question. Uh, in the early universe, the, uh, all, all we had was hydrogen right at the beginning, hydrogen and a bit of helium. And that was the only gas that was, only stuff that was around. No stars, a lot of dark matter. But uh, as the gas began to, uh, you know, as, as the whole universe began to fragment into galaxies, nearby galaxies uh, exert tidal forces on each other. And so one galaxy will begin to spin one way and the other galaxy will begin to spin the other way because the tidal forces between one pair of objects are, are exactly opposite. Okay, so they excite some net rotation in each of those two galaxies, one of which has to be spinning one way and one of which has to be spinning in the other way because total angular momentum has to be zero still. Then that gas begins to contract down. I mean, those rotational motions are quite small. But as the gas contracts down, it spins up like a, a dice dancer who, who does this, and they spin up. And so that, makes, that gives our galaxies rotation. They do. It's complicated much more than you, you would think because then you just form in pairs, but there's all sorts of galaxies all around them and they all have to share their things. So, so if you just look at any arbitrary pair of galaxies, it's unlikely that they would be exactly opposite spins. But, uh, but nevertheless, we, we have looked around the universe and there's no evidence that the universe has any net spin anywhere. In, every, in a huge box of the universe, Every, if we ca count up the total amount of angular momentum, it comes to nothing every, every time. Yeah, you know, I'm just wondering, you said at one point you did some, some of those still pictures. You said you came up using more sophisticated mathematics. Does that mean you were using Einstein's equations instead of Newton's? No. No, it does not mean we're using Einstein's equations. What I, when I said sophisticated mathematics, I meant that in order to describe all the gravitational forces between every pair of stars in a galaxy, you've got to do some uh, kind of mathematical treatment of that. So what you do is, you, instead of treating the, uh, the um, galaxy as a collection of point masses, you say, let me treat it as a fluid of stars. Each individual in that fluid has certain characteristic equations. Then I can solve for, uh, for the... Uh, uh, the motions of that fluid, but, but the mathematics gets pretty hairy, okay? So you need to be a pretty good mathematician in order to be able to solve that. And, and, it, and the uh, perturbation theory is very tricky. And it, it's, uh, so that's all I'm saying. But it's, it's still basically it's Newton. It's still Newton. Okay. Everything, all this is very classical, old stuff. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's amazing how rich Newton's physics is because it gives us these spirals. Yeah. Those are exactly the kind of physics that Newton was talking about. I, I don't think he realized that. But uh, nevertheless, we, we're still, I'm still 
only working with very, very simple physics and making something very complicated. Would you be kind enough to put up the picture that you had of the uh, large uh, mass of stars that you said that had no bars or, or circular motions, please? I'm not sure I know which one you mean. You have a galaxy there that has no spirals in it. Oh, the... This there, one? right there, uh-huh. From my vantage point as I'm looking at that, if you look um, at the, the center mass that's bright, but you look just, I guess, about 1 o'clock and 7 o'clock, am I seeing what could be the start of a bar? I'm, trying, I, I, I'm sorry, I wanted to dim the light so that we could see more oh. clearly oh, what yeah, you were oh, saying, yeah. but I, I, d I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so while, while I was trying to work that out, can you repeat the question? Yes. If you look at the, the center mass that's very bright, and then yeah. you continue to look at the, the, um, the, 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 the secondary brightness that seems to go from 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock. You can see something here, yeah. Yes. There's a very faint bar there. Right, that's what I thought I was looking at is the start yeah, of a bar. Well spotted, yes. Indeed, okay. There is a very faint bar. Now, one other question, though. If you look at the top um, the, the, a portion that looks like it's forming a bar, and if you come just slightly okay, to the yeah. left, I that other mass there, is, is that... Are we getting another maybe spiral off the bar? No, I don't. Uh, it's th that feature that you're looking at is a reflection of a light somewhere in this room. <laughs> thank you very <laughs> much. It's thank not you. There, it moves with, as I walk down to the screen. It moved, and it's not there on my computer screen. <laughs> what if I turn the lights completely off? Let's see here. Just for a second. Has it gone away? So it could be a trick of the uh, projection light itself. The projector light. Uh, oh, no, you're right. It's still there. But uh, it goes away as I walk down towards the screen. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to remind you that our next lecture here will be on February the 19th. We're going to have Beth Willman here. Beth is the associate director of the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. That's that big, the mirror's done. We've made the mirror already. They're building the telescope structure right now down in Chile. But it's going to be a synoptic telescope. It's just going to constantly scan certain areas of the sky over and over again. And the data will be free to the public right from the beginning. And she's going to tell you about how the public can get involved with the LSST telescope and the products that they intend to provide so that you can use the data. So that's on the 19th of February. The telescope is open. It's the white building if you want to go look through the telescope. I'll stamp student assignments. Let's thank Professor Selwood one more time.